Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings, and this is episode 91, Neoliberalism with Dr. Steve Campbell. Long-time listeners of this podcast will recognize the name Dr. Stephen Campbell. He is a lecturer and an author at Cal State Poly Pomona out in California. We had been wanting to talk about neoliberalism for quite a while, and it was just fortunate enough, or I guess unfortunate enough, however you want to think about it, that we ended up talking about neoliberalism today, right now. Anyway, neoliberalism is something that we've had to deal with in this country for between 50 to 40 years, depending on who exactly you ask. And I thought I'd let uh, Dr. Campbell explain to us more about this way of thinking about economics and politics. And again, this is something that I essentially, friends and family of mine, will tell you that I have this horrible condition. My horrible condition is that I like political theory, and I'm fascinated by it, probably more than I should be. Anyway, I thought I'd let him talk to us about this, and also, by the way, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. I also want to talk about Season 3 of the History Voyager, which I'm researching right now, and it's going to be fascinating. I'm sure everybody's going to love it. I know I'm going to love it. Anyway, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. And as always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. And thank you very, very much for listening to mine. This call is now being recorded. Hello, I'm here with uh, Dr. Stephen Campbell, and we're going to talk about neoliberalism. Uh, so, Steve, or do you prefer Steve or Stephen? Steve's fine. Okay. Well, Steve, um, I, because this is fundamentally a history podcast, and I like to start at the beginning of things, uh, what was the historical context? Well, I, I suppose let's start with a brief definition. Like, what is your brief definition of, of neoliberalism, sure. first of all? So I would define neoliberalism as both a specific set of policies, but also a philosophy that tries to define the individual's relationship to the market and state. We're talking about a pro-market and a pro-business viewpoint. And as I go through, through some of these policies, you'll see that there's a lot of things that overlap with libertarianism, conservatism, and supply-side economics. So you might think of a Venn diagram. Uh-huh. Uh, but, to, but to get into the history of when neoliberalism began and kind of the historical context, you really have to go back to two Austrian economists. And those are Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. And their ideas give birth to Austrian school economics. There's even a think tank in Alabama, I'm sure you've heard of, the von Mises Institute that puts out a lot of right-wing libertarian economics. And Hayek and von Mises are looking at the New Deal. So they're around in the early to mid-20th century, 
and they're looking at the World War II era as well, and they're deeply alarmed. They see statism, they see workers gaining rights, they see regulation, and they view all of that as the antithesis of freedom. And they think that it's going to lead to a slippery slope to totalitarianism. Now, the neoliberals claim to draw from classical liberals, like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, David Hume, but as I said, they are reacting just as much to the civil rights movement and the New Deal. So Hayek is really fundamentally concerned with the price mechanism. And this is sort of a natural self-adjusting mechanism within capitalism that correlates to supply and demand. And supply and demand is going to be demonstrated through prices. And Hayek and some of the other libertarians, modern libertarians, and Austrian school types, they don't want anything to to interfere with this self-adjusting mechanism. They want uh, prices to function efficiently. They want markets to be free and competitive. And there's an assumption behind this that they think that human beings are, for the most part, fundamentally rational, and they're going to make decisions based on self-interest, and that this is not only good, but it should be encouraged. Okay, so to, to allow this price mechanism to work its magic, you know, the invisible hand and all that stuff, uh, you need to protect property rights, and you need to construct an economy that is open to innovation and competition and foreign investment. So um, let's go to the aftermath of World War II. Uh, some of these economists uh, set up something called the Mount Pelerin Society, and it's dedicated to free market principles and dismantling regulations and central planning of, of, of any kind. And Hayek is going to influence uh, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School. James Buchanan is another major economist. He wins a Nobel Prize, just like Friedman. Uh, Buchanan wins it for public choice theory. And really by the going into the 1970s and 80s and 90s, that's when you see neoliberalism on full uh, display. In terms of teaching, I like to categorize or periodize, you know, two rough eras in 20th century history. You've got the New Deal era, which I'm happy to unpack, and that lasts from roughly 1933 to 1973. After 1973 is, I would argue, is the beginning of uh, when, when neoliberalism comes onto the scene. And that date is significant because you've got Pinochet coming in, uh, who comes to power through a CIA-led coup, and he's a military dictatorship. But uh, you've also got the oil shocks that year and the stagflation through the remainder of the 70s. And that gives these sort of free market types an opening because they begin to argue that, see, you know, Keynesianism is not the solution anymore. Um, okay. And, yeah. Right. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just... So, yeah. you know, you've got the Pinochet regime. You've got uh, eventually the collapse of communism. You've got all these countries in the world that are that are sort of becoming more open to foreign investment and competition and, and free trade. And, and that's when kind of neoliberalism is 
hitting its mark. And one of the, I had a guest on my podcast earlier, and he made the aside that one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism um, is that the currency, um, you tend to see like American dollars going to, going to uh, things out of the country instead of things in the country. So you, you tend to see American investment overseas and not at home as much. Sure. Uh, you know, with the opening of the economies in the former Soviet Union and in Latin America, you're going to get a lot more foreign investment. You know, in terms of, of sort of the key policies that are going on, you know, and how I would define neoliberalism, you've got, you've got deregulation, you've got um, eliminating trade unions, uh, because they see labor unions as interfering with the price mechanism, and that's because labor unions want a higher wage. And when you get higher wages, that's going to affect prices. Neoliberals also advocate privatization. They want to shift industries from public to private hands. Uh, you know, as I said, they're going to deregulate a lot of industries like cable, like healthcare, like yeah. energy. They want to reduce public debt through austerity or privatization, and they want to cut taxes. And right. that last one, if, if, if you look at um, taxes, taxes have been going down pretty steadily in most Western countries since the um, mid-20th century. And it's really in, in the Reagan years when, uh, you know, top marginal tax rates for upper income earners go from 70 to 28 percent. Yeah. And so that's a big decrease. And um, but just to address your point about the, you know, the currencies, neoliberalism has prescriptions for third world countries. So if you're going if you're a third world country, uh, you know, we don't use that term too much anymore. But I, I think you and I, and your listeners probably all, all know what it means. If you're if you're a poor country and in Latin America, and you want to attract foreign investment, um, what what the neoliberals began to suggest is that you need to uh, eliminate capital controls, you need to make your country open to foreign investment, you need to uh, cut budgets, as I've been saying, with austerity, and uh, you need to let your currency float up and down, to have floating exchange rates rather than fixed exchange rates. Yeah. the um, I wanted to talk a little bit. I wanted to get down to folk with some of the deregulation. Um, I remember, um, I think I talked to you a little bit about this uh, last time we spoke, which was I remember um, the cable bill, our cable bill was like 30-something dollars. $36 exactly. And then just now, I mean, we don't have cable, we're cord cutters, but a cable bill in this neighborhood today, if you were to buy one, have it today, would be $350. So, right. Is that, is that a function of, de that's a function of deregulation, I would assume. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, there are so many contradictions of neoliberalism that I'm sure we'll get into, but just to address, Deregulation, yeah. So, 
look, the promise of the Reaganites and the neoliberals, who might not be exactly the same thing, but there's a lot of overlap between them, is is they said that if you cut taxes, if you deregulated, if you went after unions, and you privatized industries, what would be the result? You'd get lower prices, you'd get more competition, and you'd get efficiency. And the the wilder claim they made was that growth would be so explosive that the tax cuts would pay for themselves. That's the laugher curve. And that has almost never been the case. But with uh, – Now, that's – okay, wait. Hang on. Because he's got yeah, an unfortunate okay. – he, I'm sorry. He's got an unfortunate name. His name is Ar- Arthur Laffer. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I'm uh, kind of excited about this material, so I, I'm, I'm going to kind of bring in, but I also want to make sure that I address your question. So about deregulation. Yeah, in the uh, in the 1980s, I mean, look, they, they started deregulating a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the one that I know best is finance. But, yeah, it occurs in energy. It occurs in cable companies. It occurs in telecommunications. Um, you know, so, you know, the promise of deregulation was that, uh, yeah, if you deregulated it, it would be better. But, but look what's going on in the news right now. You got Texas. You got Texas, and they're dealing with these price increases. You got um, – I'm from California, so I remember that uh, Gray Davis was recalled. And what were the reasons that Gray Davis was recalled as governor uh, to open up for Schwarzenegger? Well, there were lots of reasons, but one of them – is that we have these rolling blackouts, right? And one of the reasons that we had rolling blackouts was because we deregulated the energy sector and the utilities. And uh, it came out later that Texas, you know, Texas, once again, this rivalry with California, uh, Texas was manipulating those energy markets, the El Paso Corporation. So, uh, I, you know, we see the flaws of deregulation in uh, energy, we see it in monopoly, okay? So a lot of these industries mm-hmm. have only one or two choices. So that's actually the opposite of what they promised. They, you know, they promised we'd have uh, more choices if you just let the market work its magic, uh, that the consumer is going to have more choices. But, um, in fact, because of neoliberal policies, we've had uh, a lot less choice, um, you know, and, and sort of the big one, that we we all experienced about 12 years ago and which we've never fully recovered from is uh the 2008 global financial crisis. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of causes of that, but I would say the deregulation is a big cause of the financial mm-hmm. crisis. Mhm. Yeah, yes sir. Uh yes sir. Um let me see. Uh let me So did you go over so some of the philosophical assumptions again to recap would be everybody's a rational actor you know nobody's nobody's trying to game the system right there's nobody scamming anything that kind of thing right right that that's a and of course yeah, so anybody like I said at the beginning you know there's a there's a neoliberalism is a specific set of policies but they but they also have a view of human nature. So let me get into that a bit. Um, you know, they, they neoliberals think that we that humans are at our freest when we are in the market and when we are competing. Um, that is, it's natural for us for, to want to maximize our wealth and power. 
Um, they also look at inequality as not that big of a problem. So, for example, um, if neoliberals want to implement all these policies to encourage growth, you know, they think that growth is sort of the end-all, be-all of an economy, that that is the first and foremost goal, whereas critics of neoliberalism, and I would include myself in that, would say that, you know, growth could be could be one goal, but there's a lot of other factors you need to consider, um, especially when growth makes your uh, economy more unstable, uh, or, or I should say deregulation does that, or um, we've seen a correlation between more growth on the one hand, but greater inequality. Um, right. Just to go, go into some of these more uh, philosophical assumptions about neoliberalism, you know, neoliberals want to remake government to be more friendly to bosses and markets. Okay? And uh, what goes along with that is a lack of accountability for corporations. They, they want to get government out of the way and for example, when you don't, for example, when you don't winterize your, your turbines or your power plants or whatever, just as an example. Right, right. And okay. there was this yeah. awful, I don't know if you saw this, but there was this really awful quote from a mayor in, uh, I think it was Colorado City, Texas. I did uh, see that. And, and, yeah, and, and, and you should look at the uh, exact words. It's horrifying. He kind of says that, you know, you shouldn't expect any handouts and that, uh, God gave us the tools to handle this and that we're all on our own, that we have to be innovative and come up with solutions and to not expect anything from our government. And that's exactly what neoliberals want. You know, they, they want us to not expect uh, the public good, uh, to really look after one each other. And what was so horrifying about that quote, if you look it up, uh, and, and why that mayor ended up resigning is that he's, almost saying that, that an ideal society is kind of like the animal kingdom, that we're all going to compete with each other and sort of a social Darwinist uh, survival of the fittest will win. I wonder if I can just be philosophical for a second. You know, I live in Georgia. You live in California. Uh, we're not, so neither one of us are in Texas. Right. I wonder if one of the issues here or not issue, that's the wrong word. I wonder if one of the innovations here, right, is that I can look on my phone, on my pocket-sized computer that I can put in my pocket and this amazing communication tool, and I can go down these rabbit holes on Twitter and I can see video of, literally I saw a video the other day of an entire street going for miles of houses that had been uh, where the, the top floor of the house had been caved in from exploding pipes, you know, from, you know, from pipes that weren't wrapped properly. And when yeah. you juxtapose that with what this mayor is talking about, you know, some of these towns are never going to be right again in Texas. Sure. Some, some you know, uh, and and also, like, I, I talk to folks all over the world, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about neoliberalism. I talk to people all over the world about whatever, and they're alive, you know, and we always talk about what's going on with their lives. 
And they all of them, almost all of them, talk about how the government is coming in and they're giving them, um, we say, you know, part of their taxes is they get high-speed Internet. And, you know, what I'm noticing is this world of where the jobs are going to be everywhere, but they're also going to be nowhere, right? So you'll be able to work at a company in Germany, but do it out of your bedroom in California or Atlanta or wherever. And meanwhile, we're not, you know, we don't have high-speed Internet in rural areas, right? We, We don't do that. And that's a neoliberal thing. I'm, you know, I'm pretty right. sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the growth that has occurred in the United States, and this has had political ramifications, as you know, that a lot of the growth has, has occurred in the major urban areas. And that young people with college degrees, they are flocking towards those urban areas. Uh, but it's the exurbs and the rural areas that are kind of being left out, uh, left behind, and yeah, it's it's kind of made a haves and a haves not, and, and yeah. that's, a, that's a consequence of neoliberalism. I mean, yeah, and it's just to me, like as a country, because every Republican I've ever known, for the most part, is also a nationalist. Okay, right, all right. And what I keep trying to tell these people is, you don't understand. The whole rest of the world is looking at a world that's going to need high-speed internet the way we need a road to get out of our subdivision. And the whole rest of the world is doing this, and we're not, and we're going to get left behind. Sure. I mean, <laughs> you know. Um, all right. Now, I did want to ask about um, – so tell me – Tell me some of the, okay, one of the things that I've noticed is, believe it or not, neoliberalism is going through a kind of a renovation or a, a rethink. I don't know what you want to call it exactly. Yeah. But what what I've noticed is they they tend to be very much open to immigration and have open borders and that sort of thing. And what's that about? Well, um, as you said, that kind of contradicts the nationalism aspect. And so I would kind of contest your framing in, in that you're, you're kind of suggesting that neoliberalism went away for a while and then it came back and it's having a renaissance. I, you know, I don't know that it ever went away, to be frank. Um, when I look at the amount of money that is in our politics, for example, um, I see that as a consequence of neoliberalism. And neoliberalism operated uh, through the legal system, if you think about it, and it created this vicious cycle. And the vicious cycle can be described as power begets more power. And it really um, started happening in the 1980s. I, I, uh, the way I'll, I'll kind of joke about it with my students is that it was in the 1980s that we really released the Kraken that we had uh, uh, kind of controlled the worst impulses of capitalism. We had regulated it, but um, with Reagan and deregulation and uh, the tax cuts and all that, we created a, a corporate elite. Now, this corporate elite, it donates to politicians, and then the politicians write the laws to pay off that corporate elite. 
and they do that through a tax cut. So what does that do? It makes the corporate elite more powerful. So the corporate elite has more money, and then they mm-hmm. can use that money to donate to more politicians. All right? So that's one way mm-hmm. in which the cycle happens. Let me give you another way. Um, and this happened through the judicial system, is a Republican gets into power. They appoint hardline stooges that come up through the pipes of the Federalist Society. They take this very narrow, antiquated view of the Constitution, and they say that all of our interpretations of the Constitution are done to help big business. So we're going to issue rulings that make it hard to have class action lawsuits. We're going to issue rulings uh, like Janus that make it difficult to uh, have union dues as a requirement. We're going to issue Citizens United, and that's going to flood our elections with dark money. Uh, so to give you an example, one stat I recently heard is that these Georgia elections that you, that, uh, that, that you know well about, um, apparently it was about 830, uh, was it million or billion? I, I, I really should know that. It, it was, right. the, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the B. I'm yeah. pretty sure so it was it, the one with the B. <laughs> yeah, so, so $830 billion, that was the amount of the entire election for the 2004, uh, presidential election. Well, also, and you have other things going on. I don't know if you're aware, like, now, because of Citizens United, you have countries donating money, like both NATO allies and non-NATO allies, you know, irrespective of what you think of Russia. I mean, Britain, for example, it was NATO donated, NATO allies donated money to Biden, the country, not the government, like not the companies, not company, not, not Audi or Volkswagen or whoever, Right. But the the countries donated money to Biden. Sure. This is going in directions nobody. I don't even think Scalia thought that would go in that direction. You know. Right. I mean, and I I think that uh, you know since 1980 we've had this uh, neoliberal paradigm, and I think I think Trump has uh, very much embodied that, with a few exceptions. But you know, the Democratic presidents we've had since then. Uh, which I guess just refers to Clinton and Obama, is Clinton and Obama, more so Clinton than Obama, I would say, but but Clinton was your classic neoliberal. Um, Clinton, he was more neoliberal than Reagan, I would say. Yeah, I mean, ways, he, yeah. Did, he did, he did, he did, I mean, Clinton did protect the environment, to be fair, and, uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, was a better justice than Scalia. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, I mean, Clinton was friendly to Wall Street. He uh, downsized welfare. He said the era of big government is over. Uh, you know, he signed NAFTA, so that's classic free trade right there. Uh, but, the, you know, the big kind of icing on the cake, if you will, was the signing of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Now, what did that do? That got rid of Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall mm-hmm. was a New Deal-era policy. So if you remember when I was contrasting the New Deal era with the neoliberal era, um, in the New Deal era, we had very tough regulations on banks to the point that there were very few bailouts. Um, and that's because the banks just weren't taking any risks. 
Um, so Glass-Steagall was one of the first pieces of legislation they passed in the 1930s. FDR comes in, he gets us off the gold standard, which is fantastic, um, and the uh, implementation, uh, you know, the signing of Glass-Steagall separates the rules for commercial and investment banking. So what that means is that these big banks are not going to take customers' deposits and place them in very risky bets. So when Clinton, when Clinton gets rid of it, uh, and, you know, that was the impulse of, uh, of another Texan to go back to Texas, uh, Phil Graham, uh, his namesake, the, the legislation was named after that. When they signed Glass-Steagall, that is one of the major causes of the 2008 crisis. You mean when they got rid of uh, Glass-Steagall, not when they signed it? Yes, yes. Uh, okay, exactly. yeah. Because I remember, I mean, I remember, we talked about this before. I mean, I remember covering what became the housing crisis in 2008. But um, the thing, okay, so you had said getting off the gold standard was fan, was fabulous. Um, tell me why exactly before we come back into neoliberalism. Sure. Well, uh, the gold standard, the way it was set up with the policies, um, it was spreading deflation. And deflation or, or, or prices going down is something that you want to avoid. Uh, pretty much at all costs. I mean, that's why we have aggressive actions on the part of the Federal Reserve today. Um, the gold standard constrains fiscal and monetary authorities from addressing a recession. And they couldn't get the countries to agree to the same rules. So, um, oddly enough, I know you're interested in the euro and the eurozone. Uh, the flaws of the gold mm -hmm. standard in the 1930s bear a resemblance to the flaws of the Eurozone in the last decade. Um, hmm. there, there were imbalances. There were, uh, as I said, ways of spreading deflation. Um, and you have to remember that the war debts from the World War I was going on. Um, and I think people realize that all the assumptions behind um, having a gold standard uh, to keep inflation low, that keeping inflation low is not, you know, you could have a small amount of inflation, and that's actually uh, a good thing. If you have deflation and prices are going down, uh, you know, that's horrible for business owners and people who want to uh, pay off their debts. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were in debt uh, back then, uh, just like today. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I didn't know. I mean, I want people to know what the gold standard is. Um, so, so we got off the gold standard, so that was good. Um, yeah, yeah. Getting off the gold standard was was very much key to recovery because um, that allowed us to um, start all those New Deal programs that allowed us to devalue our currency. Uh, but the gold standard was a constraint, and I think we talked about this in the last. Uh, mm -hmm. episode that they that they did a survey of economists and they asked uh, 40 of the nation's leading economists would you go back to a gold standard and uh, and all of them said no uh, because it's really just kind of a uh, it's an arbitrary system they could never get all the countries to agree to the same rules 
Um, and yeah. it just, uh, it made them susceptible to wild swings in prices and employment. I mean, could you imagine China on a gold standard? For example, you know, just one example. Um, could you, okay, I don't remember. Did we talk about, okay, this is a question that I would love to ask you, actually. Um, so who are your standard, or I guess were, are, were, whatever. Who are or were your standard neoliberal voters and like what made them, what motivated them about the neoliberal agenda? Like I'm talking about your, your normal folks, not your, you know, your, your one percenters, your two percenters, that kind of thing. Why would, right. why would a school teacher and an accountant, why would they want to vote for neoliberal policies? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I, I think it gets to voter intent and voter motivation. And mm -hmm. even though you and I are talking about these sort of complex economic policies, and, and even though these policies are interesting to me, um, i got to be honest, especially today, you know, the 1990s might have been different, but especially today, look, people are not voting on economic policies. They're voting on identity they're voting on culture, they're voting on abortion, uh, they're voting on QAnon, they're voting whether they think their religion is under attack. I mean, these are visceral, strong uh, emotions that are coming out. Uh, just to give you an example of a famous statistic, you know, they uh, there were some political scientists who ran these regressions, and they run regressions just like economists do, uh, to figure out relationships between variables and, and, and to figure out causation and what causes what. And so they looked at, they looked at religion, they looked at class, they looked at income, they looked at education. And depending on the study you check, they found out a couple of things. One of them is that, uh, you know, what distinguishes a Trump voter from like a Clinton or a Biden voter is what they call the authoritarian personality. That somebody who believes that look, we we need we need an authoritarian, we need an outsider to come and drain the swamp. But the other thing they they noticed was that the best indicator of a Trump voter is to ask whether you think Obama is a Muslim or not. So it's just it's just something that is factually untrue. Mm. So so mm. when I look at all that, uh, you know, the New York Times did uh, story after story after story, and in fact they're you know they're still doing it. And they're going out to these uh, old Rust Belt towns in Ohio. Um, you know, they're they're consulting old men and diners, and mm -hmm. uh, they're mm -hmm. saying, you know, oh, do you love Trump, and why do you love Trump? And and they says, well, you know, he's saying it like it is, and he's uh, uh, he's against the elites, and he's uh, saying exactly what I'm thinking. And at the end of the day, it's not about economics. Uh, oh, even though it should be, but it's it's really well, not. It's, I mean, okay. I mean, this is complex because on the I, one hand, I get what you're they, saying. Like they, okay, so they did lose their jobs, right? Um, or mm -hmm. they they have, um, you know, they're presumably they're in a factory town and the factory closed down. Uh, even mm -hmm. going back to the 1970s, so there's that aspect, and yeah, the the, the towns are devastated. 
by uh, Purdue Pharma and opioids and all that stuff. So I think the way I like to say it is the 80-20 rule. About 20% of what what motivates voters is economics, but then 80% are those other cultural issues I was talking about. So if you were to if you were to say to me, you know, did neoliberalism cause Trump? I would say, well, maybe indirectly, and I would say indirectly because, as I said, you know, when they're when they're going to the polls, they're not voting on um, bread and butter issue about tax cuts or free trade or um, you know, because to be quite frank, you know, most voters don't put the time into researching those issues. Uh, you know, they're voting on those identity issues. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you want to say that neoliberalism caused Trump, it caused Trump insofar that it um, hollowed out a lot of our institutions and it made them for profit. So if you look yeah. at uh, if you look at mainstream media and I, I, I do see Trump as a as a media creation, um, there's that famous quote from Les Moonves. Uh, the former CEOs of, mm-hmm. uh, of CBS. And he said that Trump might be bad for the country, but he's good for ratings. So, you know, a, a media company, mm-hmm. which is supposed to serve a public good, if they are beholden to ratings, then mm-hmm. that's a, ne- that's a neoliberal philosophy or, or, or an ideology. And mm-hmm. we know that, uh, we know that Trump was great for ratings because at the end of the, at, at the end of the day, he's an entertainer. He's somebody that riles up a crowd, and, uh, you know, he formed uh, an emotional connection with these voters. But but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really a, uh, um, it wasn't a genuine attack on the elites, and nor was it an attack on neoliberalism. I firmly believe that Trump, in most meaningful ways, was a continuation of neoliberalism, and here's why. Because okay. what, what was his one legislative accomplishment? Uh, the it tax was, cut. The exactly. tax cut. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. So he tried all these things. He said he would have infrastructure week. He said he would uh, implement tariffs on China. Oh, and just as an aside, you know, just to give you more evidence about why some of these voters um, don't vote on economics, is that, um, you know, there are soybean farmers in, like, the Great Plains states in, like, Iowa or North Dakota. And, uh, mm-hmm. when, you know, when Trump implemented these tariffs, uh, it hurt them economically. So, and yet, they asked them, are you still with Trump? And they said, absolutely, 100%. Like, they would never, ever let go of this guy. But to kind of uh, to tell you why Trump was a neoliberal, you know, the tax cut was a supply-side tax cut which is to say that it was geared towards the 1%. And whereas some of the Reagan and Bush tax cuts gave um, for, uh, 40% of the benefits went to the 1%, this one was twice as worse. This Trump tax cut was just a pure, pure giveaway to the upper 1%. I don't even, as I recall, I swear I remember reading some article even where it was. It wasn't even the one percent. It was like, so they gave this ludicrous example, right? Where LeBron James, because he applied his living, he was an employee, right? He 
he didn't get the benefits of the tax cut as much as say if you if you earned your income passively. I think I remember reading that something like that. Am I wrong there, or or what? Well, I I think you're right in the to the extent that you know the main beneficiaries of the tax cut were for an incredibly small portion of the population. So it's I mean. Look, supply side economics is a scam. You know, it's a it's a scam to to reward the um, uh, the donors, and it's part of that vicious cycle I was describing before. You know, I'm, I mean, here's the thing: is that it's it's never once led to growth, and there was study after study after study. And what do they say? They say tax cuts create more inequality. That's and, right. You know, unfortunately. In the mid-20th century, the one organization that could put put up a fight against corporate power were unions. So once, so once you got rid of the unions, that allowed the corporate elite to get more powerful, where they could donate to the politicians, and then the politicians would pass tax cuts. Hmm. All right. So... Let me ask you, because there's always been something about, I remember like being in college and, and reading somewhere over and over again that neoliberals don't necessarily uh, value um, infrastructure improvements, which seemed odd to me. And the reason it seems odd is if your whole thing is you want to, open up the economy, right? Wouldn't you think, I mean, it stands to reason, right, that you would want uh, well-maintained roads and well-maintained bridges and, you know, high-speed rail going hither, thither, and yon, and all like that. Right. Well, am I, I alone, think what you're getting... Am I alone oh, there? Or, I'm, am I alone there? Does that, that just seems strange to me. I think what you're getting at is one of the many contradictions in neoliberalism. I, I think that what they what they are against is sort of Keynesian fiscal policy, public spending, taxpayer dollars to fund, I don't know, a dam or an airport or building a road, right, or a bridge. So, you know, in California, near where I grew up, they built the Golden Gate Bridge and the San Francisco Bay Bridge. Um you know, you might think of those as sort of Keynesian fiscal spending. And, yes, neoliberals are against that. But, you know, here's the contradiction. You know, they do that because they're against government, and they think that the private market is more efficient than public. But, you know, they never uh, – the sort of greatest adherents of neoliberalism, they never follow that rule on their own. Does that make sense? So, like, they – you know, the wealthiest corporations who are proponents of neoliberalism, they're also getting uh, sort of tax breaks and subsidies. They're getting monopolies um, and other things that, that contradict neoliberal ideology. Okay. Um, so you're saying, like, they, they oppose infrastructure improvements based on big government spending or whatever. Exactly, but but they don't mind, um, you know, 
certain tax breaks. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, that is the, uh, I mean, you got to understand that, that cutting taxes isn't necessarily small government. It's just a, it's just a gut. It, it's actually a governmental decision to tax certain uh, parts of the population while giving relief to others. And I think this gets at an important point in terms of neoliberalism as a concept, okay? So okay. when neoliberals said that, you know, we want privatization, we want efficiency, we want rational decisions being made, they said we want government out of the way because government is evil. But what they ignore is something that comes from Carl Polanyi. And Carl Polanyi said that governments inherently shape markets. It's not a question of limited government or big government. You're always going to have government there. It's just a question of who, what segments of the population are benefiting from government largesse. That's something I talk about um, in my book. Okay, right. so uh, just a few examples of what I mean is that, uh, you know, many conservative economists and neoliberals, they will say, well, uh, limited government means that uh, individual, individual rights and sort of private property are protected. But guess what? You're never going to have private property protected without government. You're not going to have private property protected without a court system. Well, what do you think that court systems are? They are part of government. Exactly. Uh, and yes, I mean, sir. And, yes, I mean, sir. and there, are, you know, there are other examples of uh, eminent domain law, uh, setting currency rates that all, you know, involve uh, the use of government. So it's not, uh, as I said, it's not a question of big government or limited government. Um, it's a question of how how do you use the state uh, to shape the market. Right, and so how, okay, so neoliberals are using the state to shift the market, are using the state to shift the market in a financial way, aren't they? Like, they're, it's before, was it before the 2008 crash, like 40% of all corporate profits were actually financial profits? Yes, yes, very good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, people pointed to uh, uh, financialization as one of those trends so that, mm. uh, you know, a company like General Electric, which mm. used to make... uh which used to make things, you know, that's uh, financialization. Now they're more involved in uh, kind of shifting money around. GE Capital. Most of their, most of their, uh, what do you call it, profits are come from GE Capital these days. Right. Um, you know. Um, so, so like the one, okay, so as a, somebody that's bizarrely fascinated in political theory. Uh, the one thing that, like the one, I guess, change in the Republican Party that I'd be curious to see if it sticks around is suddenly they seem to have this anti-immigration, well, not suddenly, but this anti-immigration feeling. Uh, so right. the party, so the, the main party of neoliberalism now Tends to, now sees immigrants as, or certain kinds of immigrants as a, as a negative thing. I mean, do you think that's going to stick around, or is that going to, is it going to go back uh, to the way it was, or? I think, 
I think again, it's revealing what I was going back before that it that it wasn't. You know, if you want to explain the Trump phenomenon, uh, which culminated in this disastrous coup or riot or putsch or whatever you want to call it on the Capitol on January 6th, that the animating feature was about race and culture. So, if, so if you look at immigration, and again, I'll I'll, I'll sort of reference those. Mm-hmm. Uh, regressions and the and the studies put out by political scientists, you know, they looked at the county level. You know, they went to Wisconsin or they went to Ohio, and they said, well, you know, what is really animating the the Trump voter? It was animosity towards immigrants, uh, because what they think is they think that immigrants uh, bring crime, and uh, they drive down wages, and they take their jobs, and they sort of. Um, are diluting the presence and the political power of white Christians, especially uh, white evangelical Christians. Um, but, you know, a lot of those things are either overstated or they're just flat out wrong. So, you know, one, I, I mean, a few positives about immigration is that a lot of these towns in the Midwest, they're losing population, right? So, yes, sir. So how do you, how do you kind of address a town that's losing population. One of the ways is that you can attract immigrants there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that immigrants, they pay taxes. Um, and so, you know, in the U.S. we have an aging population. And if people want to make sure that their Social Security trust fund is still viable, um, having more immigrants come and be dynamic and innovative and contribute to the economy and pay taxes, um, including the payroll taxes that uh, that finance the Social Security Trust Fund, that is actually one way to do it. So, um, you know, yeah. I, think in the, I think in the short term, the Republican Party is, is going to continue to be anti-immigrant. Um, and we've mm-hmm. seen that. You know, we, we've seen the loyalty towards Trump. Um, in the long term... I don't know. I mean, I've I've been hearing a lot of um, predictions about the, uh, you know, the impending death of the Republican Party. I've been hearing those articles for about I... five or six years, and it and it keeps on happening. I, I I think that you and I have talked about on Twitter about this assumption that Democrats have, which I think is is very misguided, and I and I know you agree. They they keep thinking that uh, d- uh, demography is destiny, that. Um, as long as the country becomes less white, they think that that is going to play to an advantage to, uh, well, to Democrats, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, what if the immigrants are religious? Well, they're going to vote on abortion, and that's and now, Republican. Right, and now we get into something that that I know about, which is whiteness is a political – the concept of whiteness is literally a constructed situation. I mean, oh, all you have to do is go back into into time, and you know, you see, like the Jews weren't thought of as white, or the Italians weren't thought of as white. And something that occurred to me—I think I might have told you this on Twitter—but something that occurred to me because of the election of 2020 was how, for lack of a better word, crazy or insane or nondescriptive—that's a better word how nondescriptive uh, 
the term Latino is, right? Oh, sure. Because what you're doing is you're lumping a Venezuelan in with a Cuban based on the same language, which is, I mean, if I were to show up in a, in a country, uh, with a, with a person from Britain and a, and a, and a native English speaker from India, would the three of us suddenly be in, you know, would we be English speakers? Would that be an ethnic group, English speaking people? I mean, no, that's just silly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, you've got in California, you've got, uh, Mexican American voters and they tend to vote more for Democrats, but you know, not as much as African Americans do. Um, you've got in the same ethnic group, but you've got Mexican American voters in, in Texas and in South Texas, um, in this latest election, I'm sure you noticed a lot of them voted for Republicans. So, yeah, you know, even in the same sort of broader ethnic group, you know, two different cultures in two different locations. And they're going to vote different ways. There are Venezuelans and Cubans. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the unfortunate things is uh, I've been seeing on Twitter that Republicans apparently were really good about going down to South Florida and just spreading a ton of misinformation. So whether it was saying that Joe Biden is a pedophile, uh, whether it was saying that Joe Biden – is the next uh, Fidel Castro, it really kind of bothered me to see that, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of voters were really persuaded by that. One of the little theories that I have, and I've studied politics for a lot of years, um, one of the theories about politics that I have is that fundamentally people are not political. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I, I have a situation where I have to have special shoes. And I was in the shoe store with, uh, these, this, this older couple. And her Medicare or whatever had been denied. Okay. Now this is right after Trump got elected, right? This is right in the early days of Trump's presidency. And Trump was all on the radio and all in the papers about how he was going to do away with Medicare and he was going to end Medicare. Da 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 da. And this woman was just in tears that her her Medicare card or whatever had been denied so she could have her diabetic shoes. And she said, well, Trump will, well, you know, I voted for Trump so he'd fix Medicare. Right. And it's just, I'm like this poor lady, you know, this poor lady doesn't have the interest or whatever the wherewithal interest, I'm not even sure, to connect up policy positions with her own life. And that's just sad yeah. to me. But, you know? I mean, again, I think that goes back to people aren't thinking about policies in rational ways. At least, the you know, right. not as many people as we would like. I mean, of course, some do. But, you know, it's it, it's like... If I were giving an example, if I were yeah. to go through the data, and it's not it's not hard data to see, and if I were to show you that, look, we've been cutting taxes since the 1980s, and unemployment still goes up and down, right? And mm-hmm. that uh, after we cut taxes, we had 
greater deficits, we had increased national debt, and growth was anemic. And in fact, economic growth was higher in the 1950s and 60s when we had higher taxes. I could go through all that. I could show you that data, and I could ask you, well, what is the logical conclusion to that? But unfortunately, the moment I do that, you know, I become a coastal elite, and I become somebody not to be trusted. You know, you know. I wonder if I wonder if the word yeah. I wonder if the because here's something again. I've talked to folks all over the world. Okay, now maybe I'll grant you all day long. Maybe I'm talking to the more educated people of of their societies. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that all day. But one thing that strikes me is I can talk to somebody, I can talk to people all over the world, and they strike me on the average as more intelligent than the average person in this country. Like the conversations that I have with just the average person in Britain is going to be better or more, I guess, meatier or whatever, more substantive than the conversation I have with the average American. And I wonder sure. if it's local control in the education system. I, I don't know. Just a, just a quick anecdote to that. I had a, um, I had an economist friend. I, I hope uh, I didn't mention this the last time on our show. Um, and he's from Germany, and he's a really cool guy. He knows, like, three different languages. And... Um, he got a job in Canada, and he was getting his Ph.D. in economics, and I was getting my history. So I knew him in Santa Barbara, and we became friends. We had beers together. We hung out. And I'll never forget what he said about college students in Santa Barbara. Now, keep in mind, like, this is the UC system. And you got to understand that the, the University of California system was once the envy of the world, okay? So we, mm-hmm. you know. California. It was free to it was free to California residents. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you know we had Oppenheimer and um, at the Berkeley the, the 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 labs up there. I mean, some of the brightest Nobel laureates in the you know in the entire world have come to be professors at the UC. And so and so the UC is supposed to have students that are the cream of the crop, right? In California. But, you know, my mm-hmm. German friend, his name is Till, Till told me, he said, when you go into Isla Vista, which is the small community where all the students live, he said, you know, go in there on a Friday night, and none of the students want to have intellectual conversations. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, I'm, and I'm not trying to say that I'm better than the average student. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'm just an awkward person, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, when I was at Davis as an undergrad, if I had a very fascinating lecture by a professor, I would be like, I want to go talk about this, about my friends. You know, you know, what did Kant mean by morality? You know, what did Marx mean? Yeah. What did, uh, what did Nietzsche mean by uh, beyond good and evil or whatever? Right. Me too. But, but Till said that, you know, <laughs> unlike Germany, nobody in America really wanted to have those conversations. You know, that's fascinating because I, he's right. Number one, he's right. Number two, I wonder if, 
Like, okay. So a couple of days after the the Texas, like a couple, right after the, it became obvious to me that this Texas thing was a huge deal, the, uh-huh. the blizzard, all this, I saw two or three different things on Facebook about how Biden had mobilized weather satellites and had changed the weather to to make a blizzard in Texas or something. And the thing that, I mean, first of all, that's crazy. Because fundamentally, that's nuts. Nobody's going to, no one's going to do that, number one. But one of the things, I mean, and this gets to something, I'm starting to wonder if neoliberalism is even operating in a fact-free zone if it's starting to decouple from evidence. Yeah. And maybe uh, college students are too, to a certain degree. (laughs) Well, it's uh, part of this goes back to regulation. I think that, and and, and it also goes back to the dumbing down of the discourse Mm -hmm. um, and that our education and media systems probably don't do as good of a job as they should of informing us. Mm-mm. Um, you know, I think about the spread of conspiracy theories and I think about the power of these big high tech companies in Silicon Valley. I mean, the CEO class, the sort of Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, um, they don't want any regulation whatsoever. And I think, I think they're only sort of caving to it right now because they think that it might get worse. Like, you know, I've always wanted uh, Facebook to be regulated like uh, a public utility. Uh, But it's not, and it disappoints me because the sophistication of the the discourse is very immature. So, for example, if you say, you know, we want to regulate these companies so that they don't spread misinformation – what is their response? They will say, well, that's against free speech. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I, I, I mean, of course I like free speech, but I also think there are healthy limits. If you regulated, let me ask you a question. I don't mean to put you on the spot. If you were to regulate Facebook the way you regulate, let me, Okay. I don't know how old you are, but there used to be this phenomenon where you could go to the community center and there was a bulletin board and you could just put stuff up on the bulletin board. It's where the term internet bulletin board gets its name from, right? Okay. Yeah. But every, every community center I ever ran into, pre-internet, post-internet, whatever, they had rules like you couldn't you couldn't say certain things, right? Right. You couldn't, you know what I'm saying? If you regulated it to where you can't, basically you can't incite a riot, you can't, um, you can't post stuff like these little obvious, obviously fake news stories that, that Joe Biden is running weather satellites into Texas which is 
a little bit crazy. You gotta sure. admit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which even get, even got me into this meta question of, do we really have? Is it is it a far right problem, or is it a mental health care crisis? Both, but I mean, I I will <laughs> you know? I will point to the far right, and I'll just say it's been their long term project to discredit neutral arbiters, and you know what I mean by neutral arbiters. So, for example. Um, if me as a professor, if I say that climate change is nominally real, but we've known about it for many, many decades, and uh, it's a serious issue that we need to stop what we're doing right now and uh, immediately address it, the whole right-wing project has been to try to kill the messenger. Right. And so the right-wing project has been to kind of um, go after independent studies or, you know, nonpartisan civil servants and say, you know, those guys are the elites. Uh, you can't trust them. So, uh, oh, those guys are government scientists, or you can't trust that judge. You can't trust that professor. And that's, you know, you saw that. Or in like, the, uh, yeah, like suddenly if you're, I mean, like, Suddenly, if you think that uh, if you start pointing out cutesy little facts like uh, what's one uh, the the GNP of our country is is just shockingly to a shocking degree is tied to healthcare, and right. you know perhaps perhaps that's not a good thing. If if you even just say that, suddenly you're a um, you know, you're, you've got a Che Guevara poster on your wall. And, exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and that was something I wanted to bring up. I'm glad you addressed it. Is that you know, it's yeah, it's mostly a problem on the far right, but this has been going on since the two Red Scares. You know, the first Red Scare in 1919, and then the second Red Scare of McCarthyism. That you know, anything to healthy American population is, is all the, all of a sudden a slippery slope towards Stalinism. You know, if you want to provide a public option, you know, that means that you're going to be sent to the gulags, right? That, um, you know, oh, you must be like Venezuela. And it's, I, I don't think a lot of people know what European countries are like. In terms of their healthcare systems, I don't think people can tell the difference between like a Stalinist versus a social democracy. I wonder uh, if that's and that's something I wanted to ask you. And thank you for reminding me. Is there? Because I think there is. I think there's a an age difference, or, or like a there's a difference because I noticed like among my friends that are more internet savvy and more Let's talk to people all, all over the world, savvy, right? We're talking about, you know, the we're the ones that talk about how we need to have some kind of government or some kind of intervention with the cost of healthcare in this country, right. be, be it whatever, you know, or like, you know, and then you have the people that don't, you know, get on these boards or don't talk to people in other countries because that's the other thing that I noticed when I talk to people in other countries, is how much more relaxed they are 
I mean, they're relaxed. And where we're stressed out. Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, neoliberalism has all these different manifestations. And one of them in the U.S., and this is part of our Puritan heritage, if you want to call it that, is that we're married to our jobs, you know. And part of it is that we're insecure, like we always feel like we need to work hard. But, we, you know, we don't take long vacations. A lot of us don't have um, very robust savings accounts or retirement accounts, you know, partly because corporations have eliminated them. But, yeah, I mean, we pay twice as much as, you know, most other countries do on their prescription drugs, but we don't even have that good outcomes. You know, you you would think that if you paid more money for something, you would get better outcomes, but we don't. If anything... Um, it's the opposite. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, in America, we need to do a much better job of saying that, uh, you know, Sweden and Denmark, they're capitalist countries. They just have a different relationship between state and market. You know, uh, their labor unions are stronger there. Uh, the labor unions are stronger in, uh, France and in England, and that's why they've won, uh, certain gains for their population, right? But, but, you know, but just because you have socialized medicine does not mean that you're a Stalinist country. Uh, it does not mean that you're going to turn into Venezuela. Uh, you know, Volvo, the company, is a Swedish company. Uh, you know, they are perfectly capitalist and they, and they do fine. Also, like, uh, Volkswagen, which, you know, right. they have, I mean, heck, they have their roots in fascism. Literally. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. um, we, and kind of capitalism in the U.S., it's all about shareholder value, and that's something that Milton Friedman emphasized, and that, you know, if corporations just focused on the shareholders, uh, then everything would be fine. Um, in German companies, as I'm sure you know, they give workers a seat at the table. They allow yes. workers to help decide, okay, are we going to produce things here or are we going to ship the job overseas? But, you know, that would be unheard of. I was just uh, kind of watching. I couldn't believe it was a year ago, but uh, Bernie Sanders was saying, you know, we, we need to give workers more of a choice in deciding how to run a company. It's more democratic. Uh, it's less hierarchical. And, uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg, who was supposed to be the savior of the Democratic Party, uh, which is just absurd, right? Uh, you know, this big billionaire. And, That's how uh, far to the right the Democratic Party is. Yeah, yeah, gone. in some ways. I mean, yeah, so, so Bloomberg goes, you know, no, this is absurd, you know, that he, he said it was anti-capitalist. Um, well, what, okay, what would that look like? Let's let's say that you gave workers a seat at the table, and let's say that you did things like, um, you know, let's say you did things like, well, okay, you'd have to change some laws, but where, you know, the company wasn't beholden to the shareholders only. Like, they could think about other things like long-term growth or what have you. And let's say you incentivized by law or whatever, uh, and subsidized even companies' 
bringing jobs back to this country, you know, manufacturing type jobs. What would that look like? Well, I think we would have hopefully a more informed discourse about what freedom is. Give you an example. Um, it's been a cornerstone of conservative ideology to think that freedom is about choice. And uh, this, this actually relates to your question about labor unions and workers, because in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the, the leaders of big business said that freedom came down to what was called freedom of contract or liberty of contract. Have you heard about this? And they said that, um, you know, if you're a worker and you don't like the wages or the contract that you're signing, then you have the freedom in the form of choice. You can walk down the street and go to another business. But once you sign your name, you are locked in. And if you pass any regulation, whether it's a and minimum it, wage law, whether yeah. it's a uh, giving your workers health care, that that is an infringement on the fundamental rights of property. Uh, so the New Deal comes in, and yeah. the workers, you know, literally had to sacrifice their own lives to win, win these rights. You get the Wagner Act, you get uh, 25 to 30% of the American population was unionized at its peak, and they said, we are looking for a fundamentally different view of liberty. It's not liberty to have this freedom of contract because that is a fictitious invented right. It is a right that we are not asking for. So, you know, what differentiates New Deal liberalism uh, from neoliberalism is a lot of things, you know, regulation, taxes, et cetera. But it's also that, that, that philosophically that different view of what freedom is. So, you know, for a Bernie Sanders type, Freedom is the ability to not have to worry about being bankrupted by health care, right? You know, freedom is the ability to have a one-family income if you want. Freedom is the ability to buy a house, which is, like, impossible for anybody living in California. Um, so, Or even, like, freedom is the ability to – well, there was a, there was a woman uh, who said – Freedom is the ability to be hit by a car and have a stranger call an ambulance and you wake up in the hospital and you're not out $7,000 because of an ambulance. Or 100000 yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, but yep. it's, it's amazing to me how this concept of uh, amazing isn't the right, it's horrifying is a better word. How... Right. Um, the concept of con uh, contract, liberty of contract, when you talk to people today, well, you could just get another job down the road or you could just do something else. Well, you know, what if you can't? Exactly. And <laughs> li liberty of contract is only meaningful if both sides have equal amounts of power. Now, and it's never the bosses that agree with it. it's the it's the it's not even it's the secretaries that agree with that. It's not even right. the middle managers. That's what's so backwards about our politics these days. Yeah, it's you know what I'm saying. I mean, I, uh, you know, you know, two quick 
facts and statistics about American capitalism in relation to capitalism in uh, other countries is that, um, and this is a very old study. I think it goes back to like 1970 or something, but I, I, I think it's still relevant. Of all countries and their labor history, we have the most violent history of like when workers go out on strikes, you know, the most people have died. How, however you measure that violence, we have the most violent uh, history of laborers. And I, I, I personally believe that you could probably tie that into slavery because slavery was um, mm. at the heart of the founding of this country and slavery was ultimately based on violence. Um, but the other thing is that CEOs make way more money um, in our country compared to CEOs in other countries. If you were to look at the statistics of a CEO in Germany or Switzerland or the UK, um, they're still doing really well. They, they make 100 or 150 times as much as the average worker. But in the U.S., guess what they make? They make 350 to 400 times uh, the amount as the average worker. That means that no other country is even close to us. You know, number two on that list is less than half of what CEOs in the United States make. So, um, and just to kind of, I, I want to offer some closing thoughts about neoliberalism. Yeah, that, please do. Um, that I forgot to mention, because uh, I think uh, just like our first time together, you and I agreed that, um, <laughs> you know, we could talk about this for hours. Thinking about neoliberalism um, as a concept, I I was thinking about this. I, I, I kind of think of the 80-20 rule. So, you know, what do people vote on? I think I think it's 20% economics by 80% um, cultural issues. I think about neoliberalism, you know, overall, is it good or bad? I would say 20% of it probably has had some benefits. And believe it or not, I do think that comes from – trade, you know, we get uh, a lot of emphasis on uh, those towns in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin that have closed down and, and it's devastated the community. What often gets forgot, though, is that maybe the, those created jobs in Pakistan or China or India or Indonesia. And so that very same process has created a middle class in those countries. So it is true that neoliberalism might have weekend um, the middle class and labor unions in the United States, but it does raise the question of, you know, does that mean an American worker, like their job is more important than somebody in China or India who is uh, doing the same thing? I think, uh, you know, that often gets lost in the uh, discussion. Now, having that said, uh, the reason I brought up uh, 80-20 is I think, uh, and this is just a in approximation, I'm not. I'm not saying that 80 is uh, any sort of precise statistic. It's just my way of saying that uh, you know, mostly neoliberalism has had a lot of negative effects. Um, the European Union is imbalanced. It still has problems of Germany versus Greece. Uh, neoliberalism is anti-democratic. Corporations are able to evade uh, democratic accountability. It's very tough on the environment. I do think climate change is our 
is our number one big issue that we all need to think about. Um, I will say that because looking at the data, if you were to compare 2010 to 2020, that, um, you know, a lot of Marxists have kind of missed this point that according to Marxist ideology, they, they often see Democrats and Republicans as the same. I do not think that's an accurate way to view the two parties on every issue. And I, I certainly don't either, by the way. Yeah, and so <laughs> to look at um, kind of a few issues that show why that view is misguided is because uh, look at climate change, look at originalism, look at voting rights, and look at taxes. There are the, some pretty fundamental differences uh, between the two parties. Um, and finally, I'll just say, you know, the economics profession, some of it is very rigid in its ideology. So, there, you know, some, some of the economics profession is still going to promote neoliberalism. But as more and more data has come in, they have realized that um, austerity and cutting budgets during a recession is uh, is not a good thing. It's going to backfire. Um, and they've seen that, you know, again, Greece and Southern Europe, that if you, um, you know, if you cut those public programs, uh, it's just, it's going to backfire. Yeah. Well, just to close out, um, do you see, I mean, I want you to put your crystal ball hat on. Uh, do you see neoliberalism as the passenger that's going to be with us through time, or, or is it, do you see an end somehow to, to neoliberalism? Well, that's a tough question. I think that um, it depends on what aspect of neoliberalism you're talking about and how okay. you define it. I think I think if you... If you define it as a set of policies, I think free trade and immigration are probably here with us to stay. Um, hopefully, there gets enough pressure on our politicians to get uh, to get money out of politics. That would be my dream uh, to stop deregulation, to stop privatization, yeah. because I don't think that's healthy for our lives. I think, like I was saying that, because you asked me earlier, what is the voting block that votes for neoliberalism? And I, I, I think with the with the 40% of the country that is diehard Trump Republicans, you know, they're not voting on tax cuts. That may be what the uh, Mitch McConnell wants. That may be what the donor class wants. But it's not what the, uh, what the rank and file wants. So... Um, I kind of don't know, to be honest, and, and the thing they say about historians is that um, historians are bad prognosticators. I mean, we really don't know. I mean, you know, if we would have had this conversation in 2019, uh, you know, we didn't know what COVID was. And we thought yeah. that, uh, that life was just going to proceed as usual. I, I, I think that uh, that, you know, that COVID has really mixed things up and it's kind of uh, just led to a lot of problems and made us very uncertain about the future. COVID, I think, has added perspective. You know, to me, like, you know, like, maybe maybe it's just me because I talk to 
one of the things I do is talk to people about their COVID experience. So, I, I mean, I hear a lot of stories about, you know, so-and-so's dead or, or so-and-so's missing an arm or what, what have you. But I have just a lot of perspective that I didn't have in 2019. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, what do you value in life? It's like, if you had an argument with somebody, it's like, was it really important to have that argument if they could be dead the next day, you know? It's like, it's like, would you feel good about yourself? I actually, I actually had an argument with somebody that was pretty serious or was headed up this pretty serious road. And I said, I stopped and I was like, all right, right now there's a woman who doesn't know what to do with her life because her husband is missing an arm. We're going to stop talking about this. <laughs> Perspective. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? Sure. I mean, I don't know. Um, Steve, it's always a pleasure. Um, you can come on anytime you want. Um, hold on, let me unhook the recording. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Ben. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. You're welcome, sir.